This is the Dive Bomb Squadcast, presented by Dive Bomb Industries. What's up, guys? Hope everyone is doing well as we find ourselves one week closer to waterfowl season. Today, we are going to talk about a hot topic in the waterfowl world, and that is banded birds. And to help me with this, I am joined by the birdiologist, Mr. Brian Huber. Brian, what's up, man? Not much, Asher. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Um, so just a quick introduction on my side. For those of you that don't know, um, Brian, he's a 12-year waterfowl biologist with the California Waterfowl Association. Brian, uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, uh, and how you ultimately came to become an expert in this field? Yeah, so... Um just uh, so the basic background, you know, I grew up in South Lake Tahoe, um, small kind of mountain town. Um, didn't really grow up hunting that much. We definitely grew up fishing. You know, we had a little trout stream in our backyard where we go catch fish right out the backyard. Um, grew up in Tahoe, uh, moved to Santa Barbara City College and went to school down there. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I was kind of just bouncing around. Um, having a pretty good time down there in Santa Barbara not really focusing on school, but trying to, you know, figure out what I want to do. And I more or less uh, moved back home to Tahoe, um, started salmon fishing with a good friend um, down by Chico. We used to cruise down there all the time, every single weekend during salmon season, camp out on the river, catch salmon. And I was like, man, I could go to school down here and kind of finish up a degree. Um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I was kind of getting back into the outdoors and uh, started um, learning uh, about fishing and fish biology. And I was like, man, that'd be a cool major, you know, study fish. Um, so that all started. And then a good friend of mine, he's like, man, you got to try this waterfowl hunting. I was like, dude, I don't want to go duck hunting. That doesn't sound like fun. And, uh, he kept hounding me. And so finally I went, man, and he took me and we went to a refuge and, uh, you know, he called in these mallards and they floated right in. I still remember those birds coming in. And ever since that, I was just hooked, man. And he's, he's yelling at me, why didn't you shoot those birds? And I was like, dude, I don't know what I'm doing out here. You know, you got to tell me what to do, man. <laughs> um, so I kind of was, you know, shifting my focus to biology and I was at Chico State and there was a flyer up and it was like waterfowl ecology class. And I was like, no way, man, there's a class like learning about ducks. I, I got to get in that class, you know. So I went and uh, talked to the professor and, you know, he was really strict. He's like, oh, you're a duck hunter. Yeah, this isn't really for duck hunters. This is for biology majors. And, you know, this is a serious class. And I was like, well, I'm a biology major then, you know. So I uh, I pretty much right there decided I want to be a biology major. Um, went through Chico State, graduated, um, kind of just a general biology degree. But there's definitely some like wildlife classes that you can take, like the the waterfowl one, ecology, um, aquatic ecology, a lot of plant classes, all stuff that's, you know, important and relevant for waterfowl biology. So uh, started off with California waterfowl. You know, I, I went and helped my buddy that was working for him over a summer and he was banding birds. And I went out there and I was like, man, this is such a cool job. You know, I really want to get in on this. And I applied for the next position because my buddy had to go back to school and I was done with school. And uh, it was a rocket netting position for pintail. I was like, man, that'd be so cool. So I applied and I never heard anything back. And like three days before the project started, you know, I had already figured I didn't get the job. And uh, I didn't know it then, but he was kind of my mentor boss um, called and he's like, hey, 
you want to work for me? And I was like, heck yeah, man. And so uh, I was down there in three days and we started shooting <laughs> rocketettes and pintail. And uh, wow. So I've been with CWA um, off and on for the past 12 years, last six years, I've been on full time. Um, you know, the waterfowl biology world's pretty tough. You know, you don't just get out of school and get a full time job doing waterfowl biology. Typically, you kind of got to put your time in, do some grunt work, do the seasonal work, kind of bounce around um, to get your foot in the door, you know. So, I, I mean, I knew I could find another job, you know, counting snakes or surveying hawks or whatever, but um, waterfowl is my passion, man. And so I uh, stuck with it and it, it's paid off working for CWA. Wow. That's a really cool, cool story, kind of how it all came together. That's that's absolutely awesome. Now, I'm looking on your Instagram, and I, I saw this a couple days ago, and you posted, um, you know, you were banding another batch of, of egg salvage birds. Um, those are, I mean, those are, can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, those are wild strain mallards, correct? Yeah, so... Um pretty hot topic now i'm sure a lot of folks on the atlantic flyway have heard um how they're a good friend of mine actually phil levretsky is doing a lot of the studies on the genetics of mallards and they're finding in the atlantic flyway that they're just in over saturated with these game farm birds so feral birds okay um which are different than our egg salvage program so a lot of folks saw that and they're like oh man you're letting feral birds out and i'm like no 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 right. this is uh egg salvage so our egg salvage program we basically partner with farmers around California. So California, a lot of folks don't realize, has a pretty substantial um, breeding population. So these birds are here year round, especially mallards, gadwall, cinnamon teal, wood ducks are kind of our top ones. And that population hovers anywhere from 250 up to 500,000 birds just wow. in California. So um, what happens is in California, a lot of that natural prairie, natural nesting ground is pretty much gone. So all these birds are nesting in ag fields. Mm -hmm. And there's a conflict, you know, when it's time to get that field ready or harvested or whatever. So there's these birds nesting in there. And so what will happen is like if a farmer has a cover crop, he'll call us and be like, hey, got a cover crop. We're going to mow it tomorrow. Can you guys uh, come and search the field? And so we'll go out there with quads and a big drag chain uh, rope hooked in between the quads and we'll search the field and the hen will flush and we'll go find the nest and we'll collect the eggs. Um, we'll take data on the nest, how many eggs, the incubation stage. Um, and then we'll take those eggs to the hatchery partner hatcheries that we have. And they'll actually raise those birds until um, they're just about to fly. So like five weeks or so. Um, and then we'll band them and then we'll go find suitable hat habitat and let them back go in the wild. Wow. And that's a lot a, of that, that's really, that's really, really cool, man. Yeah. It's a cool program. And it, you know, uh, a lot of people think it's like saving the California mallard. It, it's really like the numbers that we're doing are about four to 5,000 birds a year. So, it, you know, you multiply that by 500,000, um, bird population. It's really not much, but it's just that interaction with the farmers connecting them. And then, you know, just doing good for trying to get right. those birds back out there. And, you know, and I'm sure that, that come, comes as a shock to a lot of people you, hearing you say that you guys are nesting a quarter to a half a million birds there. Like when, when we talked about that a few days ago, I was like, what? Like y'all are, y'all have that many local nesting birds. So going back to the percentage of waterfowl uh, that are killed 
by the hunters in that area, uh, what percentage would you say are those local nesting birds? So for mallards, um, California shoots 70% of its mallards are from California. So we're not getting, uh, we really don't get a huge push of mallards. Now, when you start talking about, you know, widgeon, shoveler, teal, pintail, all those birds are coming from north, from Alaska, from the prairies. But for mallards specifically, I mean, just through the banding data, we're shooting our own mallards. Wow. And so with that data, with the banding data, we've kind of come up with the Western mallard model, which kind of has helped us separate from the continental wide uh, mallard population to kind of our Western population. So we can base our seasons off of our own populations instead of comparing them, you know, where we're not really getting birds from. So Gotcha. Now, I know that being in California, pintails, they're a hot, hot topic. Um, and you touched on it briefly when you said a lot of these um, birds are susceptible, um, because they are nesting, um, in ag fields, maybe instead of like natural prairie. And, um, you know, we've, we talked about pintails a little bit and you mentioned, um, something that I thought was really interesting. You said even maybe more so than some of the other birds, they're really, really susceptible to, to nest in those type of places. Yeah. So the, you know, um, pintail population for the most part you know there was a big drop um there was a drought in the prairies and a lot of the bird populations kind of dropped and then when the water came back most of those populations came back you know you had all the dabbler ducks kind of bounce back except for pintails they kind of have just hovered at that lower number you know and so there's been a lot of a lot of debate on what's going on with pintail um but what's happening in the prairies is their farming practices are changing so pintail are short um, short grass nesters. So they like like the shorter grass and they select kind of more open exposed nesting sites. Okay. And so what's happening is they're doing, it's called no-till farming now. So, so before I, I forget the year when it kind of changed, but, uh, I think in the last 10 years they would, you know, they'd harvest their field and then the traditional farming practice, they'd go through and, um, run a, a dish through it and it'd just be dirt, you know? So when the pintail showed up, they just have natural prairie grass and then they'd have dirt. Well, now what they're doing is they're doing uh, no-till farming. So instead of disking it over, they're just leaving it stubble. So the pintail show up and they see this stubble and that's like what they're selecting for nesting. So uh, it's not the best cover. It's not, um, you know, they're getting hammered by predators. And then the farmer comes in and does what he has to do to his field during nesting season. So kind of the same thing with our egg salvage program. You know, there's this conflict right. with the, the nests and the farmer. And so pintail will try and re-nest, but they're really not good at re-nesting. And so it just kind of expedites just not having a good uh, hatch for them. So, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So now, the debate is, uh, you know, a lot of folks are like, oh, hunting pressure is causing the decline in pintail. And so that, you know, we've had restrictive limits for a long time now. And the population's really just hovered at two to three million. So it's not really... Mm -hmm. doing anything with that restrictive thing. And so, you know, we're kind of, you know, looking at the habitat, it's habitat based on the population, not necessarily the hunter harvest. So a big push for California is to try and get more pintail in the bag. Very cool. That's awesome, man. You know, it's, yeah. it's a lot of stuff that you just casually, you just don't know. Like you just don't really know until you talk to somebody like yourself that studies it and you're involved with it. And then you learn, you know, you learn some really, really valuable information. So let's, let's talk about like the annual cycle of waterfowl and how it uh, correlates to like banding season. So 
Um, tell me a little bit about whenever uh, you guys start banding from uh, the time, you know, the birds finish nestings to the, uh, you know, the brood rearing to the molt and all that. Just can you, can you kind of break down that whole um, process and, and steps throughout the spring and summer and through uh, yeah, I can uh, the banding season when you guys come in and do what you do uh, before. Yeah, I can just run down, you know, like our our season, you know. So uh, we'll might as well just start with right now. So right now um, in California, most of the birds have finished nesting, and the hens are raising their broods, and the males have already kind of abandoned, and they're hanging out in bachelor groups and going to places to molt. Okay. So right now is when we kind of kick off our summer banding. So when the birds are molting, they're flightless for approximately three to four weeks where they can't fly. So they're kind of stuck in the same area. And this is a really good time to catch them in bait traps. Uh, we also do night lighting. So uh, our crew up in northeastern California just went night lighting last night. And I think they got um, 360 birds just in one night, which is pretty impressive. Um so if folks don't know what night lighting is, you uh, get in an airboat and you wait for the darkest night and you drive around in a big, big wetland unit and you shine, the, you see birds and you kind of shine a spotlight at them and it kind of stuns them enough where you can swoop up on them in the airboat and ca- catch them in a fishing net. So you run around doing that all night um, and then we'll also try, you know, rock and netting for mallards. So the summertime, we're targeting mostly mallards, gadwall, anything that's breeding in California, wood ducks. Um, right now, there's a bunch of redheads in northeastern California, so we're catching those too. So that's what we're doing right now. And then in early fall, we'll have enough, uh, usually September 1st, first week of September, there's enough pintail in the valley to start trapping them. Okay. And we'll pintail, the method we use for those, just the best way to catch them is rocking netting. So they, they tend to be in big groups and they hang out together. Um, and when they come that time of year, it's pretty hot. So a lot of the times they're loafing on islands or levees. So we work with um, different wildlife areas, private landowners to kind of create rocking netting sites for us and hope that the birds kind of go there. And we'll catch pintail. We'll start to get some white fronts in. We've done some... Uh, some collars on the white fronts doing some gps tracking on them but we kind of catch them as a bycatch for the preseason. we call it so that's our preseason pintail um, we'll do that right up until the season starts we'll try and catch as many as we can our state um, wildlife agency does the trapping as well so we kind of have two crews and we help each other as much as we can and between the two of us we try and catch about 1500 pintail and then uh, duck season comes along, and, you know, if you're a duck hunter, um, it works out pretty good because that's more or less your dime downtime, um, kind of your computer time, um, time to get your reports done, time to get new grants submitted. Um, and then also, you know, you have a little free time to go hunting, so it works out pretty good. And then, um, and then I was, so then right after duck season, we get into our postseason banding. And we're targeting pintail again. And also um, the last few years, it looks like some of the funding might have dried up, but um, we were catching some white-fronted geese, snow geese, and Ross geese and putting the GPS collars on them as well. So uh, again, we're using rocket nets during that time of year and we'll catch the birds. That year, that project, we're trying to catch a thousand pintail just on our own. We're, we're one of the only crews that does post-season banding. So it kind of gives you a different look into the banding data. So, you know, if you have birds, you ban right before the season, you kind of see the hunting pressure on them. But if you ban right after duck season, you kind of see their nesting 
season survival, you know, so it's kind of two different data sets for banding wise. Um, so yeah, then we do that until January through January, February, uh, March and March will sometimes follow them up to Northeastern California if we still need to catch more birds. And then once that's over March and April, we kind of transition back into nesting season and um, we start doing kind of wood duck boxes. California has a huge wood duck program that I manage that's over uh, 600 volunteers across the state. We hatch about 35,000 to 40,000 wood ducks annually just through our boxes. So pretty big, pretty big um, volunteer project, which is pretty amazing too. So, and then it circles back to nesting season and back to summer banding. So that's kind Man. of the, <laughs> the year, year of banding for us. That's awesome. So what are you, uh, what are you baiting your traps with? So it depends. Um, so summer banding, um, we, we almost always use patty rice. It's just uh, patty rice is like what rice would look like straight off the, the hole. You know, there's the hole is still around it. Um, sometimes we'll use corn and stuff, but the corn just doesn't hold up in the hot summer in California. So the rice has been the best, but we, we only bait. Um, so like preseason pintail, if you think about it, all these wetlands are flooding up and they're just full of food. So baiting is really really tough to get the birds on bait because there's food everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then postseason, it's the opposite. You know, all the food has been more or less depleted. And so if you get them hooked on bait, I mean, they're, they're on it, man. So we get some, some pretty amazing rocking net shots on bait. Um, same thing using rice and we're, and we're in the rice fields too. So it's pretty, pretty fun. Definitely. Now you were talking about, you talked about uh, solar collars a little bit, the GPS solar collars. What, what is the cost on one of those units? So they're depending on the size, they range from about twelve hundred to fifteen hundred dollars a piece. And then on top of that, you have a data plan, you know, so it's kind of like a cell phone to buy a data plan. So they're pretty pricey. Um, we had a big mutual contract in partnership with a bunch of folks, um, USGS, Fish and Wildlife Service, State of California, uh, Delta Waterfowl, California Waterfowl, we were all involved in this big cooperative project. Um, so our part of that project was to catch the birds and put the collars on. And then USGS is kind of in charge of the data and managing all the data and, um, you know, coming out with all the publications and stuff. So all that stuff's in the works. We have a, a cool graduate student that's doing a lot of the work for us and helping us a lot. So, And kind of... Talking about the price on the solar callers being that pricey, that kind of brings me to my next question, which is another very, very hot topic in waterfowl, and that is band hunting. Uh, people that are chasing bands, and particularly, particularly guys that are, you know, looking for callers. What are your thoughts on that from? Uh, your standpoint as a guy that's uh, trying to do this to gather as much research as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, from a, you know, there's kind of two sides in my head, you know, I'm a biologist on one side and I'm, I'm a hunter on the other side too, you know, so, um, but yeah, it's become, you know, I don't know what, why it's become such a status symbol, but folks with bands and collars and I don't know, maybe it's posting cool pictures on Instagram or whatever it is, but there's a huge, um, I, you know, in my mind, it's it's not huge, but um, there is a problem with folks that are targeting collars, um, targeting, you know, bands, letting birds land and then shooting only the banded birds. And 
I mean, ultimately, what's happening is they're skewing the data and they're basically making making it seem like more birds are getting shot because the way that the banding data works is you're taking a ra- uh, a ratio, right? So you're using a ratio of banded birds to non-banding birds and kind of figuring out how many are, are getting harvested based on your band results. Well, if folks are targeting bands, then it's going to look like more birds are getting shot. And ultimately that could lead to hurting your season, mm-hmm. you know, especially on, um, on birds that are, are more protected. You know, if guys out there doing mallard, shooting mallard bands, I mean, that's tough. If you got the patience to do that, whatever, man, go for it, do it. If you're going to sit there and land however many mallards to get your little mallard band, do it. But you know, like when you have more sensitive populations like Brant, you know, and, um, Right. Tule geese or uh, Lucian geese and guys are sitting out there and specifically targeting, you know, those collars. I mean, you're ultimately skewing the data that we need. And um, so the, these GPS collars actually kind of help stop that, right? Because the, the other way we'd have to report the collar or re-see the, the regular collar, you know? Well, with uh-huh. the GPS, man, I can look on my phone and tell you right where those birds are as long as they got cell service. So it, the technology is kind of going to probably outcompete that eventually and that's why you know folks get mad oh why don't why don't they call our geese anymore and it's like well if you guys are going to target them then it's not really valuable for us to put collars on you know we can put a gps collar on one bird instead of collaring 100 and get better data you know right. so no, it makes it's kind of sense. uh yeah yep. it makes perfect sense um what all species have you guys put a collar on i mean you, you'll see the pictures online you know we'll see the canadas it seems like we'll see you know some specks you'll see some rossies uh but what are some other species that you guys have slapped one of those solar collars on so the geese um we've done ross geese snow geese uh white fronts and tule geese i'm not sure if you're familiar with tule geese um they're kind of a subspecies in california that we have um small population but breed in a different area and they're kind of a little different than the white fronted geese Um, Mm -hmm. hard to tell them apart but they're um, definitely a a subspecies so not its own species but a subspecies and it gets kind of dicey on protections and stuff there but um so those are the goose and then we have i mean we've got them on just about every waterfowl i know we've put them on green wing teal cinnamon teal shovelers widgeon whoa whoa, whoa. Um, you've got a you've got a solar collar on a shoveler so not not a collar so when we do the ducks we actually use a backpack and okay. so it's um, kind of like some straps and you strap it to their back, kind of like a backpack would be. And that, that's how the ducks ride on it so a you, lot better. you got a backpack on a shoveler. Oh, yeah. We've got more than one on a shoveler. Dude, that's like the <laughs> – if you look at our group, everybody's like, oh, you know, the shoveler kill a bandit. So that, dude, that'd be like the crown jewel, I think, uh, for some people because the shoveler, the poor thing, you know, everybody just kind of kind of rags on, you know, the shoveler all the time and – you know, and their, their big, their big smile. And, uh, i tell you what, man, uh, the Northern shoveler has saved many of what could have been very poor days in a, a burnout Arkansas rice field. So I try not to hate on the shoveler too much. You know, we, we like to call them, you know, the Alabama greenhead. Um, <laughs> but I think that's like, you you've made it, man. You shoot a you shoot a shoveler with a backpack on, and it's like, dude, I don't I don't really know what else I can do to top that. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, uh, we, we banned a lot of them too. So like, well, they, they kind of preseason, they'll hang out with the pintails when they're loafing. And I think one year we caught over a hundred of them and they just had bands on them. So wow. we did like a social media post and people were going crazy, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, at my duck club, it's a $10 fine for shooting a shoveler. So <laughs> I give it your view by there, you know, it's kind of let down, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we definitely have a, some shovelers out there. Um, and then you what was got cool, a pair of Eurasians? Is that what you said? Yeah, we do have a pair of Eurasians that we wow. put collars and backpacks on. That was pretty Sweet. cool. Following them, um, cinnamon, cinnamon teal. Yep, widgeon. Wow, uh, pintail mallards. Gosh, I need yep. to. I'm in the wrong place, man. I mean, you could hunt, and I know guys that you know they they hunt hard, big groups. They burn them down on public ground. They might shoot between six seven hundred and you know a thousand twelve hundred birds and man, they might shoot one band they might shoot zero bands uh you know mallard bands it's just man they're they're just tough to come by over here um i don't i don't know why they're so rare but man i know guys that'll kill you know they'll they'll have a break in bands between every you know a few thousand birds and you'll talk to somebody out there in klamath and they'll you know they'll shoot seven on opening weekend uh, yeah, I'm pretty it's, jealous. Uh, I'm in the wrong place. It's uh, it seems like it's just some guys are lucky, man. I mean, I haven't shot a band in a couple of years, and I know where we banned them all. You know, I I got them on my phone GPS. <laughs> you know? How many but, uh, uh, how many bands have you shot? Uh, myself, I think I'm at like eleven personal bands that I've shot. Oh, that's well, well, that's not bad at all. Well, I guess that got that has to bring me into my next question: is have you ever shot? a bird that you banded. So I kind of have, um, we did a Canada goose drive with our state fishing game partners and we did the drive in, uh, when was that June? So we, I was there when we banded the goose and then on opening day in California down in the Valley, I shot it. So kind of awesome. ban- shot one of my banded birds, but until I shoot one of my pintail, I really don't want to count it. So that, I really want one of my, pintail. that's the one you're after, huh? The pintail. Yeah. Or a widgeon, man. We've banded thousands of widgeon, and uh, it would be really cool to get a widgeon band. Wow. So how many, uh, you know, just a solid average year, how many bands, uh, you know, between yourself and, you know, projects that you're coordinating, how many are you guys slapping on? So us, our, our own organization is probably right around like 6,000 a year, um, and then we help other groups, you know, with a couple other thousand. But, you know, it's funny. We talked on the phone the other day, and you're like, how many birds do you think you banded? And I, I couldn't come up with an answer. Well, I kind of went through my notes, and like, so to get a, a banding permit, you have to kind of build a resume. And so I have like a banding resume that you kind of okay. submit to the the BBL. So it looks like it was over 50,000 that I've been a part of. Wow. So pretty crazy, yeah. That is awesome, man. That is too cool. You know, I, um, you know, nobody really knows, but Nick had been kind of talking to Brian a little bit and we were trying to get something worked out to come out there and help volunteer and assist Brian and a banding project and, uh, just get involved and, you know, be a little bit more hands on. And it, it just would be so cool. That's just such like a bucket list thing for me to, to be involved with, a you know, some sort of waterfowl banding. I've always just thought it was the neatest thing ever and you know we were making a little progress and then of course covid came along and you know killed all the fun but we're uh we're not gonna we're not gonna die on that dream we're gonna we're gonna get something lined up eventually and we're gonna make it happen 
Yeah, hopefully the you know the restrictions on COVID's killing us, man. It's a pain in the butt. You know, we we rely on our fundraising dinners, you know, to make our money for our organization, and we, we can't do it. We haven't been able to do it since February, and so we're we're struggling bad as a company organization, um, just trying to keep everybody funded and keep everybody working. But yeah, we were. I was looking forward to doing that with you guys. And then, uh, you know, we just kind of got shut down with this COVID thing, but I, I think we can make it work next year. Hopefully. Awesome. Um, I've talked to Nick a little bit about it in the past and I didn't know a lot about like the colors of the collars and how they may coordinate with, with where birds are coming from or where they were banded. Um, and is there, is there any truth to that? I mean, I think one time he's like oh, a red one, like, he might have just been lying, but I think he said they like came from Russia or something and white ones were like local or what's the deal with the colors, the colors that are used, uh, any significance to that or uh, is is it actually relative to where they're coming from or can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, generally it is um, related to like their breeding ground. So a lot, I don't know the numbers off, or the colors off the top of my head, but yeah, he's definitely right. Dif- different breeding grounds, they try and put different colors on so that when you report it, you can kind of be like, oh, it's a red collar. We might not get the number, but we can understand where it was collared at, you gotcha. know? And um, so, yeah, that definitely correlates um, in general, but you know, folks, Sometimes folks will have leftover collars or something, but I, I'm not sure with the collaring on the breeding grounds. That's just, uh, you know, up in the Arctic, that's just not something I get into. But yeah, it's definitely color coordinated. They definitely do it for swans as well. So you can tell where which swans are coming down from different breeding grounds. Have you ever banded us? Do y'all have swans over there? We definitely have swans. I've never banded them, but yeah, there's uh, sometimes where you can see the tundra swans, and you can go find a you know a handful of collared ones. And I've gotten Sweet. some pretty cool pictures of them. But we can't hunt them here. But you can hunt them in Nevada across the across the border. I've tried to get a tag uh, and go out there, but I haven't been successful yet. Gotcha. What is your favorite color combo, like bird to collar color? Um. You know, I I like the ones that are tricky, man. Those ones, the the white on the snow geese, I love those. I was gonna say like, those are kind of those are kind of rad. The white yeah, on I the mean, snow geese. I was really, gonna say that like those are pretty sharp. You got to look hard to find them. You know, a part of a lot of uh, when I worked for the fishing game, part of our my job was to drive around and actually use the for the tule geese. We had the old radio collars on them, so you have to drive around with the receiver and you're looking for the collars. And so you're spending all this time trying to read the collars. So it was always cool finding a big group of snows and trying to find those ones that are hard to read and, you know, find them. So that was always, that's pretty cool. Do you guys, uh, ever do tarsals? You know, we haven't done them, but I know some other folks do. Um, we haven't done them yet. We, We don't do the tarsals. We don't do the web tags. Those are like for real specific studies, you know, Okay. Um, you find, uh, the tarsal bands mostly on like some wood ducks and also like on the brant or like emperor geese or something that you can see from far away and read the number. That's not as intrusive, intrusive as a collar. So they're still kind of function as a collar. Gotcha. But, but for us here, you know, like if we put a, one on a pintail, you know, there's whatever 3 million pintail here. It's like the chances of reciting one with its foot out of the water, like slim to none. So it just doesn't have All much right. value. Have you ever seen a, a band or a collar that was interfering with the the normal uh, life, I guess, of, of a bird? Like whether it like grew into its foot wrong or something, uh, maybe like the way chain link would 
grow into a tree or have you ever seen anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it definitely happens. You know, you try not, you try and, you know, size the collar or the band for the bird. But yeah, sometimes, you know, there's just a big footed duck or goose or something. And it just, uh, you know, I've seen them where they've kind of grown into the leg before. And that's just, uh, doesn't happen often. Um, something you got to watch out for on the collars too, is that, um, the GPS ones are a little bulky so they can get snow and ice on them when they're up there in the Arctic. Or uh, yeah. So that can be a big factor. Um, so yeah, th- I mean, those things happen. We try and keep it to a minimum and, you know, try and adjust. Um, there's definitely different sizes for the different birds. Um, and then, you know, sometimes the backpacks, the the bird just doesn't um, take to it very well. And so like the, the feathers are kind of molten, kind of gross and nasty, but it happens. It's rare. I would say that, mm-hmm. but how, it definitely happens. How cool is that? Like whenever these birds start to to make their way south and they're on the move like how cool is that like watching tracking those movements on your phone like kind of seeing the stops just the gradual progression of them making their way south like that's got to be pretty awesome oh it's crazy man last uh last uh fall migration um i shared it on my instagram but there was uh white fronted geese that were up in alaska and they picked up and headed to california in three days and they flew directly over the pacific ocean it was wow. like, so you could see their trail and uh they stopped for like an hour and you could see them drifting in the current it did like a big loop that they drifted in the current and then really? they picked up and flew yeah so, so they it was just, just, just took a little rest out there and went on their way yeah yeah they basically like follow you know the um the high pressure or low pressure whatever it is that pushes the 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 drift down, you know, uh-huh. they just catch that, that wind flow down and just cruise on down. I mean, three days from Alaska to ca- the Valley of California is pretty impressive. That is so cool, man. Too cool. So your geese, uh, specifically your white fronts are uh, for people that don't know them by the, you know, their real name, you know, most people call speckle them specs. Bellies. Yeah. Speckle bellies. Yeah. Um, chief speckle belly. Yeah. Chief bar belly. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ones y'all are banding, um, where are those birds nesting? Most of ours are going up to Alaska, um, up in like the, uh, just the, the Alaska. Um, I can't think of the name. I'm drawing, having a brain fart right now, but like the Cook Inlet, um, the, I can't think of the name right now. There's a big refuge up there. All the um, rivers kind of drain into the, why can't I think of it? Bummer. Do you guys ever see any that are coming from like, you know, the North Slope, like, the arctic russia you know we'll get the snows definitely from russia so we the wrangle island has a big population of snow geese and a lot of those do winter in california and the pacific flyway okay and then the, the north slope um arctic is where we're getting most of our snows and ross geese up there sweet too cool before I let yukon you... yukon delta that's what a yukon Con delta. delta yeah up okay there, yeah. now before I, before i let you run um I got a couple questions I want to ask. Um, what's the oldest recorded band you've seen? Like, I mean, because I've I've seen online that there's a Canada goose that was 33 years and three months, and there was a canvas back that was 29 years and six months. So what is the oldest one that you have seen? You know, I'd have to I'd have to look it up. I don't know on the top of my head, but um 
it's hard, you know, so the way that the ban reports come in is it's like you get a ban return and, you know, we have them where it's like from 97 or something. And you're like, is this, did this guy just find like his grandpa's bands? Right. Or, right. There's no way um, unless you reach out to him to actually like find out. solidify that. Yeah. But I mean, we've definitely had birds that are over 20 years old that we've banded that are, you know, got shot or whatever. I mean, it's pretty crazy. That is awesome. Is there anything else like really interesting that you can think of that because i mean all these questions are this is all like new to me this is this is just really really cool this has been a fun fun podcast there uh anything that you can think of off the top of your head that um you know would kind of maybe surprise somebody or no i mean i'm not i mean uh i can't really think of anything off the top of my head um just uh you know, just the, the movements that they make and then, um, you know, just um, the timing of stuff, of the birds coming down. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think they, they they wonder about, you know, their migration down once they do start coming down um, from the breeding ground. Specifically, like, you know, obviously we're not talking about local birds, but like your geese that are coming down. You know, how – I mean uh, – the specs i don't know was it was that a rare case that they just stopped and shot straight down or is a, or are there many of them that are taking a lot of time to get down there or does it seem like once they decide to make their way down they're they're boogieing on down pretty quick or are they some stopping over in other places for a month or two or three or four weeks or you know stopping up in oregon or, yeah. or something like that you know, from what we've seen, it looks like there's kind of different uh, migration strategies. So you have the ones that come over the Pacific and they fly down in a couple of days. And that's just one marked bird. You know, you assume there's a couple hundred or a couple thousand associated with just that one marked bird. You know, it's not one goose on its own doing it. Um, but then you have, um, you know, some that come down the interior, um, you know, down the Pacific flyway through um, Alberta to the Oregon Washington come down into California that way. Um, and then, you know, it's neat watching them go up cause they kind of go up, uh, kind of head over to the prairies and then, you know, maybe they're checking it out and then they head to Alaska, you know, they cut over that way. So going back and forth is kind of two different pathways too. Um, I guess one thing that might be interesting is folks uh, might not realize is that, um, males, um, and ducks typically have a tendency to switch flyways. And so people might not realize, but females um, tend to nest in the same area that they were hatched in. And so they pair uh, separately every year, right? So they find a new mate every year. And the males, um, you know, the hen's going to typically go to the same flyway, the same spot. Well, if a male in California pairs up with a female that nests up in Alberta, he's going to follow her up there. And then once he's done with her, he's going to hang out with a bachelor group of males. And those males might head to Arkansas or, you know, the central flyway or wherever. And so then you kind of get more, more variation in males spreading out than females, just kind of based off that seasonal, seasonal relationship stuff. That's that's always a cool thing. Yeah, that's really cool, man. I, I would have never thought that. Have you ever seen a bird, maybe one that you guys had, um, you know, GPS tracker on? Have you ever seen a hen nest in like literally the same pond like maybe maybe she was nesting um you know off of a small little wetland or a small little 
uh, pothole or something like that. Have you ever seen one that nested like in that exact same proximity? Yeah, no, we definitely have seen them in the exact same spot. And um, you really see it in wood ducks. So, you know, the wood ducks boxes are really easy to kind of monitor the, the birds and stuff. So, I mean, you're recapturing the same wood duck in the same box year after year. That's cool. Which is pretty amazing. <laughs> and then there's yeah. also been uh, mallards that are banded. And you can literally see like her nest from last year, like next to it, you know, like the nest bowl and everything and like the wild fields. So, cool. yeah, they definitely nest in the same area. It's pretty neat. Okay. I got, I got one more question then. Um, yesterday we – me and Cade, we made a run to um, Coca-Cola Woods. It's a very historic bottomland timber here in Arkansas, uh, famous. Uh, you know, it's it's just incredible, uh, one of a kind. I mean, there's a few clubs like that, but there's not many. Um, but in their lodge, they had a mallard wood duck. And I've seen a lot of crosses. I've seen a lot of hybrids. But a mallard wood duck, I couldn't help but think, and I'm like, how in the hell? Did those two get tangled up? Um, can you bring some light to that one? Because that seems like two that it just seems like a wood duck crossing with something else. You just wouldn't see them. And obviously it's rare because, you know, I, you just don't see them much. First one I've seen, we did a little poll on Instagram and I think maybe like 10 or 11 people or 10 or 11% had seen that cross before. But how in the world did those get mixed up? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely rare, but um, mallard, drake mallards are horny sons of bitches, man. <laughs> when they, uh, you know, it's crazy, man. When we, you know, we're doing nest searches and stuff and we blow a hen off of her nest, I'm telling you, within seconds, there's at least one, two, maybe five drake mallards that are on her ass, dude, and they're ready to wow. mate her, to harass her. And so, um, yeah, it's pretty crazy, dude. So I, I'd imagine just some poor hen wood duck just got harassed by a Drake Mallard, and, uh, you know, that's what happened. But, yeah, it's definitely rare, the wood duck mallard cross. But, you know, you see a lot of gadwall mallards, um, some pintail mallard, you know. Uh, they definitely are not afraid to uh, go outside of their yeah. <laughs> What yeah. uh, how many, how many crosses would you say that you guys band each year that you come So – they're actually really rare, man. We, uh, I've only banded one hybrid that wasn't. We get a lot of Eurasian American wigeon hybrids that are kind of hard to gotcha. pinpoint, but they're they're definitely some interbreeding going on there, and we get quite a few of those. Um, but the only one I've really got was a mallard wigeon, and that was like a really. Uh, we caught one in a rocket net, and we banded it. It was a pretty cool story, man. We banded this bird. It went up and did its thing for the breeding season, and then came back down. And uh, this kid shot it at a duck club, man. And he, uh, it was, it was a cool story. The kid shot it, and he's like, "It's banded." And his dad's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "It's a mallard." And he's like, "No, it's a widgeon." And he's like, "What the heck is this thing?" You know? And uh, wow, he, I think he was twelve or fourteen or whatever. But yeah, it was pretty neat, man. So yeah. that you know, they're rare, man. That's the only one I've come across um, banding. Um, I've seen a couple in the wild, but not not a lot, man. They're they're rare. What is the What's the wildest thing that you have, uh, you know, caught in one of your traps um, or maybe rocket nets? Like, have you ever, you know, like, like because in Arkansas, like I went in a lodge one time and a guy had like a long tail duck that they shot in a rice field. I mean, I'm like, how the hell that happened? You know, it's like 
I don't know, like down at Stanfield, they got an Egyptian goose, you know, like, have you ever, you know, have you ever had something like a sea duck or just something that was totally off the wall that just did not belong there that you've, that you've seen? We've seen them, but we've never really caught them in the nets, you know, like, um, there's definitely been reports of long neck ducks and stuff out here too, but, um, yeah, we haven't, we haven't really caught them. You know, when we we're doing it, um, you gotta be careful of what's under that net, you know? So you gotta be able to see it real well. Right. Um, but we've, de- we've had like beavers inside our swimming traps, which, which are always interesting. So those are fun. And then uh carp will get in there too. So you'll be trying to find a duck and you'll feel like this big slimy fish oh, in there. You're geez. like, what the hell is that? Wow. Have you ever seen no, a, thinking, have you ever seen a blonde mallard? Yeah, we've we've seen a bunch in Bandit a few. Yeah, not a true like albino one, but definitely some blondie blondish ones that just kind of have the, some pigment issues. Yeah, wow. there's a couple of those. So I was thinking about um, cool band stories. Um, we banded a pintail in March, and the very same year in May, a guy shot it in like mainland Russia. Really. Yeah, so it's pretty crazy. They're going up there. I'm assuming they go up, cross the Bering Strait there, and kind of head back down Russia and winter over, or uh, breed down there. So it's pretty crazy. Um, and there's been reports of like Japanese bands getting shot in California too. So no, that's really cool, man. Yeah. Well, this has been this has been fun, man. I'm just like a little kid with all these questions, just asking them, sitting back, and all this. Have you and you ever seen that and this and that? So. This one is, yeah, uh, no. this one's been a lot of fun. And I'm sure you, you know, everybody you talk to, you're like, man, like, you know, geez, this guy's got a lot of questions, but, um, you know, no, it's fun. This, I mean, it's kind of like cool. why the, why the Instagram page is there is just fun sharing, uh, sharing what we get to do. You know, it's not, not a lot of folks get to do it and I'm fortunate to do it, um, and just be able to share it and it's fun and, you know, I think hunters really enjoy just, I mean, a lot of this funding is coming from duck hunters. You know, we get duck stamp money, we put in grants for federal grants and stuff. So, you know, I think it's important um, to share what we do. There's always been kind of like a, you know, you don't want to talk about rocking nets because sometimes a bird dies and it's like, you know, whatever, just talk about it. It's not, you know, we're not killing hundreds of birds, you know, every, right. every 200 birds, you might have one that gets mangled in the net, but you know, it's not a, it's not something you can talk, you can just talk through it, you know? So, right. It's been fun sharing it all. Definitely, man. Well, we um, we sure appreciate you coming on and, and joining me and, and uh, just talking about it a little bit and kind of educating us on, on waterfowl banding and just kind of the fun things that come along with it. Um, you know, I sure hope one day we can get it worked out and come out there and I can I can crimp one on because that would be just really, really cool. And I want to do that, so. Uh, yeah i think we can, we can make, make it happen <laughs> yeah all right brian work. well man i will let you run thanks a ton this has been a lot of fun and uh i'll talk to you soon man yep thanks for having me on man i appreciate okay, it okay thank you man what a cool topic uh i learned a lot during this chat about waterfowl and banding and i hope you guys did as well uh you can find Brian on Instagram. His username is at birdieologist, uh, B-I-R-D-Y-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. Uh, really, really cool follow. Um, it's hot out there, guys, but endure just a little bit longer, and those early honkers are going to be knocking on the door. As always, 
make sure you guys are following along on our social media channels, especially the YouTube channel, because we have some awesome full-length hunt videos coming your way this fall. You don't want to miss it. Until next time, y'all be good. Thank you for listening to the Dive Bomb Squadcast. Thank you.